Okay, good. Well, once again, welcome. My name is Sam. I'm the Minister of Outreach here, and it is so glad to be hanging out, standing up in front of you guys today. I don't usually speak, but I have the privilege of speaking to you tonight. And I'm going to continue our theme for the year, Kingdom of Heaven, where we have been learning about how God's kingdom is not just a future hope, but also a present reality. A present reality that we get to be a part of, whether we are here at CCF worshiping at a dinner and a message, or on campus walking up the million-dollar staircase, or in the apostle line at Bolton. Wherever we are, God is with us, and Jesus is with us, which means that his kingdom is with us, and he has given us very important work to do in his kingdom. But I think too often we miss the point We miss the point. We miss what God is doing right in front of us. And so that's what I want to chat with you guys about today. Some of the ways that we fail to see what God is doing right in front of us and how we can reorient ourselves towards his kingdom and our place in it. So Jesus, he had all sorts of people that misunderstood who he was and what he was trying to do, right? You had the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they misunderstood him. You had the Romans, they didn't really have a good understanding of what he was trying to do. But I really want to focus in on one group of people that seemed to misunderstand Jesus a lot, and that was the disciples. Yes, his, the disciples, his closest followers, were constantly misunderstanding what Jesus was doing. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a couple of different stories in Matthew's account of the gospel. Matthew's one of the people that wrote about Jesus' time on earth. It's kind of what we've been going through this year for our theme, the gospel of Matthew. And we're going to look at a couple of different stories uh, about Jesus interacting with the disciples. And I have a foot cramp, and that is just the worst. <laughs> so we're going to jump right in to uh, Matthew 14, verses 13 through 18. Here we go. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves something to eat. Jesus replied, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We only have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, Jesus said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over, The number of those that ate were 5,000 men, besides women and children. So starting off, Matthew tells us that Jesus and his disciples go to a lonely place, right? Ever since Jesus started his ministry, they were constantly surrounded by people, pretty much nonstop. And so, you know, they needed time to go hang out together and introvert, and that's just a very natural human thing to want to do. And so they go off to a lonely place together, but the crowds catch wind of where they're going. And so they follow Jesus out there, and of course, Jesus attends to their needs. 
And specifically, they are just outside of a town called Bethsaida, which is a Jewish town. So this is a large crowd of Jewish people. We should be asking ourselves when we read this passage, what is the significance of it in Matthew's account of the gospel? What's the significance of it for us as the readers, as well as for the crowd that Jesus healed? Um, You see, each book in the Bible, I think sometimes we think of them as having just kind of uh, just like a, a long list of events that happens. But really, it's a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. There are characters. The characters grow. They change. Some of them don't change. And that's true of every book in the Bible, but it's also true about the Bible as a whole. And so we should be looking at Matthew's gospel and trying to figure that out. And we should also be thinking about the Bible as a whole and how we can look at it to get context for this specific passage. And so for that, we have to look back into the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. There was a time in Israel's history when they had just come out of slavery in Egypt. And they were waiting to pass over into the promised land which was God's resting place for them. And during this time, in between those two places, they were in the wilderness. There wasn't any consistent source of food, water, no shelter. But uh, God promised his people during this time that he was going to provide for them. And so he created this type of bread called manna, and it would appear on the ground every day, and the Israelites would collect it, and there would always be just enough for what they needed. Now, it was a hard time in Israel's history, but it was a time that future generations would look back on and remember as a time that God took care of his people. So that brings us back to Jesus in Matthew's gospel. What's he doing here? He's showing this large crowd of Jews that he has the power to heal them, to take care of them, and to literally feed them with bread in the same way that God the Father did for their ancestors hundreds of years before. Now, that's just a little bit of context, but what about the disciples? I mean, that's what we're talking about. The disciples, where do they fit into all of this? Well, Jesus makes kind of an odd comment to them, right? They're thinking through things practically. They're They're saying, Jesus, we need to send these people away. We don't have any food to give them. And Jesus says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat kind of a head scratcher. What is he asking them to do? I mean, does he expect them to perform the miracle? They had no idea what Jesus was going to do next. What Jesus is doing here is he's teaching his disciples to take part in the work that he is doing. He's asking the disciples to partner with him. All the time and in every situation, God is asking me and you to take part in what he's doing. But like the disciples, we miss it. We're distracted. We don't understand. It's time that we open our eyes to the amazing things that God has planned for us. But I don't want to focus on us at the moment. I want to turn our attention back to the disciples to see whether or not they can open their eyes to see the bigger picture. And so for that, we have to keep reading. So we're going to go to Matthew 15 now, one chapter later, and we're going to read a very similar story. So this is 15, 29 through 39. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. 
Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the cripple made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may faint on the way. His disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Bring them here to me, Jesus said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Whoa, did I read the wrong passage? Oh, no! That is so awkward. Okay, uh, let's, uh, let's try that again. Yes, back to verse 33. Go back one slide. Yes, so that's where we were, and then I mixed up the other one. So his disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Okay, now, verse 34. How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves, not five, and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those that ate was 4,000 men besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went into the vicinity of Magadan. Okay, so that was really confusing because I mixed up two stories that are almost exactly the same. So let's just think about that for a second. Matthew puts two feeding stories, one where Jesus feeds 5,000 people, over 5,000 people, and then over 4,000 people back to back. What's the deal with that? I mean, did he make a mistake? Did he accidentally tell the same story twice? Oftentimes, when we read through the Gospels, the writers will uh, repeat similar stories. But what's important is not the similarities, but the differences. Right? There were a couple of differences in that. The number of people, the number of baskets, and the location. We're going to touch on that in a second. Basically, the Gospel writers will often give us one version of a story, and they'll establish information. Like in the feeding of the 5,000, we learn that Jesus has the ability to feed thousands of people and that he cares for the Jews the same way that his heavenly father did. And then they'll repeat the story and modify it and add on to it and add on to what we know in some meaningful way. So the location, I had to do some digging to figure this out, but it turns out that they are either just inside of or outside of the Decapolis, which was a Gentile region. This means that this crowd is different than the first one, right? It's either partly Jews and partly Gentiles or or almost entirely Gentiles. What Jesus is doing here is paradigm shifting. 
He's showing that the God who took care of the Jews in the wilderness by providing them with bread was opening up his ministry to non-Jews or Gentiles as well. Everyone is welcome at Jesus' table. Another thing that's crucial about this story is that it's the second time that the disciples have witnessed this kind of event, right? Uh, They've seen this before. It's familiar territory. And so Jesus says to them, I have compassion on the crown because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. It's almost like he's trying to drop some subtle hints, right? He's like, come on, you guys know what's going to happen next. We don't almost expect his disciples to say, well, what are you waiting on, Jesus? Let's feed these people. Free fish, free bread, and a brownie, just like we do at CC Free Food. <laughs> Instead, here's what the disciples say. Where are we going to get enough bread in the desert to feed so great a crowd. Can you just feel the irony in that question? Did they forget who they were with or where they were? What's going on here? Ladies and gentlemen, the disciples have missed the point. But Jesus is patient with them the same way that he's patient with us. He simply responds with the question, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. And he begins feeding them, just like he did in the previous story. But it doesn't end here, right? The story about the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 has an interesting conclusion in the next chapter. So we have to keep reading. And I promise that I won't mix up the passages this time. So this is in Matthew 16, starting with just verses 1 through 5. This is literally what happens right after Jesus feeds the 4,000. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. So we're not going to spend too much time here, but essentially, uh, if you're wondering why it's so backwards for the religious leaders to ask this kind of question, it's because they're asking with bad intentions. It's kind of like they're saying, like, so you're saying you're the son of God. Well, prove it. And Jesus is like, I already have. I mean, I just got done feeding 4,000 people, right? So just wanted to touch on that for a second. Now we can pick up in verse 5. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed among themselves and says, it's because we didn't bring any bread. (laughs) Aware of their discussion, Jesus asks, You have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered then? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Oh, I get it now. So after feeding the 4,000, the disciples realize they don't have any bread with them. Whoopsies, well, no matter, they're with the guy that can just make bread at will. But Jesus isn't thinking about bread. He's still hung up on this encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees, which were religious leaders. Um, And basically what he's saying here is he's just saying beware of these guys, right? If following God is like baking, then don't include these guys' teaching in your recipe. But the disciples aren't thinking about the religious leaders. They're thinking about where they're going to get their next meal. They're focused on the problems that are right in front of them. So they miss the point of what Jesus is trying to say, and they start talking about their lack of bread. The past two stories that we read have been building towards this moment. The disciples see Jesus feed over 5,000 people, then over 4,000 people, and here they are in a boat with the bread multiplier, worried about food. They've missed the point. And Jesus rightfully gets kind of irritated with them. And I think sometimes we get uncomfortable with the way that Jesus talks to the disciples here. I mean, he calls them men of little faith. So let's talk about that for a moment. What I want to emphasize is that Jesus has this sort of relationship with his disciples where he can get upset with them, and yet there is still a sense of mutual respect that he has for them and that they have for him. A healthy relationship is not one devoid of conflict. A healthy relationship, whether it's between friends, romantic partners, even us and God, is one where you can express frustration and still know that you are held within the other person's love. And if there was any question that the disciples weren't cut out for the work that God had given them to do, then Jesus would have abandoned ship a long time ago. No pun intended, because they're on a ship, if you lost track of that. Um, What Jesus is doing here is he's guiding them back to the truth. He is trying to point out what actually matters. And the way that he expresses himself does clarify things for the disciples. Oh my, there are sirens out there if you didn't hear them. Um, They have that aha moment. They realize what's going on. They go from having missed the point to understanding what's happening. So now that we've traced this mini-story within Matthew's gospel, where do we go now? You may be asking yourself, how do I make sure that I don't find myself in the same boat as the disciples? You may be thinking, what if I'm missing the point? What if I can't see the bigger picture of what God is doing in my life, what he's calling me to. Here's a tricky one. How do I know that I'm missing the points if I am? So what I want to do is look at a couple of things, or really a couple of categories of things that regularly distract us from what God is trying to do in our lives. Here's the first one. Are you ready? It's, it's the small things. I forgot to make a slide that says the small things, but just imagine it. It's in big yellow text. All the small things. Stop. That was a test. That was a distraction. 
Because the small things are distractions. Let me tell you about them. Whoa, I got to look at my notes. <laughs> look at the disciples in the passage we just read. Why were they, uh, why did they miss the point of what Jesus, that Jesus was trying to make? They were worried about their immediate needs. They were worried about what they were going to eat. And I think that we're the same way. Like oftentimes, God is over here in the periphery, hanging out in the wings, and we want to give him our attention, like genuinely, but there's always some small thing that is right in front of us that's distracting us, like we got to do homework, or we have to sleep, or we've got to go to work. We have to finish this or that project. We need to spend time with our significant other, our friends, run errands, pursue our interests. Now, all of these things that I'm describing are good. They're good things. They're a natural part of our lives. The issue is we never stop, right? We go from one small thing to the next, to the next, to the next, and the whole time God is just waiting somewhere in the corner, waiting for us to give our attention to him. So let me tell you a little story, and ironically, this is the story of what happened this morning. Sophie's going to think that this is funny. <coughs> but many mornings, I wake up at, uh, well, excuse me, I set my alarm to wake up <laughs> at 7.30 a.m., and the goal is to spend a little bit of time in the morning because my days tend to be a little bit better when I spend time with God. But I don't know about you guys, but it's been cold recently, and I don't want to get out of bed when it's cold. So this morning, I hit my alarm and snoozed till about 8.15, and at this point, I have maybe 15 minutes or so that I could spend with God, but I know that if I don't make my coffee, I'm not going to be a nice person. So I get up, and I make my Chemex coffee, and that usually takes five or ten minutes, and while that's steeping, I start unloading the dishwasher, and then my coffee's done, and I pour it, but I've started unloading the dishwasher. And if I don't finish before I leave, well, that's just going to hurt my brain. So I finish unloading the dishwasher, and then I go say goodbye to Sophie, and then I head here to CCF. And at this point, I've punted spending time with God to later this evening. And it's about noon, and then Nathan texts me, and he reminds me that we have plans in the evening. So after I leave CCF, we hang out from, I don't know, 5 to 7 we play a board game or something like that, and then I get home finally, and you know the first thing that I do? I lay down on the couch in a fetal position and conk out, literally like this. <laughs> it's amazing. You can, I, she can confirm, yes. And the same story just goes on and on and on, and and I realized finally that all these small things are like whack-a-moles. I hit one and five more pop up until I finally just hit pause on the game. And I give my attention to Jesus. And let me tell you something. There will always be a little voice telling you, if you don't do this thing right now, it's not going to get done. Or if you don't do it, you're going to fail. But nothing else matters when Jesus is in your boat. We're just like the disciples. We're afraid of where we're going to find our next loaf of bread. But Jesus reminds us that he is the bread provider. He can and will provide for you and take care of these small things if you just give him your attention first. 
So that's the small things. And so next we can move on to the second category, which is, drum roll please. Oh, it's not there. It's the big things. The big things. You thought it was going to be more profound, maybe, but if you want to hear something profound, you should come to next week's talk when Roel Salinas, one of our former staff members, yeah, is going to be giving the talk. He usually has profound things to say. Oh, that's so awkward. Come back in two weeks. You should still come next week. Whoever's speaking next week will also, oh my gosh, it's Angela. Angela will also have profound things to say. Yeah, maybe. You never know what she's going to say when she gets behind the mic. So what are the big things? The big things should have more importance in our lives. The big things tend to carry more weight. The issue is we often let them carry too much weight. The big things often come in the form of questions like, who am I? What am I going to do with my life? What is my life's calling? Is my major helping set me up for success? Am I where I need to be right now? Do I need to be in this relationship? Am I wasting my time? Sometimes the big things come in the form of big theological questions like, God, what am I supposed to think about hell? Why do we suffer? Why do you let wars happen? Why is there so much violence in the Bible? Now, I want to be clear. All of these questions are really important. They're questions that lots of people ask. For the record, I've asked every single one of them. Whether it's questions about your life, your calling, your occupation, are really big questions that you're wrestling with God in, you should dedicate a certain amount of time to answering these questions. There's no set amount of time, right? It's different for every person. However, I think that we sometimes let these sorts of questions take up too much space in our minds and in our walk with God. Right? Sometimes we give God this sort of an ultimatum. We say, God, when I can answer these questions, when I can achieve these things, then I'll give you my attention. We say, God, once I know what I'm supposed to do with my life, then I'll be able to use my talents and my abilities for you. God, just let me get through college. Just let me get through my master's program. Just let me get my first job. Just let me get married, and then I'll begin thinking about ways to serve you. Sometimes we're actually working through these sorts of questions with God by our side, right? We're actively asking him questions like, am I supposed to be in this relationship? Am I supposed to move back home to save money? Are you calling me to work in ministry after I get done with college? The truth is, sometimes God does give us direct answers to these questions, but oftentimes... He doesn't, right? Answering these sorts of questions often comes through a process of walking in faith and trust with God. But we, we torment ourselves by trying to guarantee certainty. But God rarely gives certainty, right? He wants us to walk 
and trust with him. He does guarantee that he has our best interests in mind and that he will be with us as we walk through these sorts of questions, no matter how difficult it may be. Whatever the question may be, situation may be, questions like these often distract us from the things that God is doing in the present moment. The little present graces and joys that we get to experience every day. God is in our midst all, all the time. He's here now. Right? Answering the right questions doesn't make him any more or less present. He is always in our boat. He is always working. And he's always asking us to partner with him and the kingdom work that he's doing. So those are our two points, the small things and the big things. And in a moment, I want to give you something practical to focus on to avoid the trap of the big things and the itty-witty tiny things. But first, I want to make something clear. The point of this is not to say, hey, CCF, don't be like those point-missing disciples or else. That's not the point. The point is, we are the disciples, right? We all miss the point from time to time. As someone who has sought to follow Jesus nearly all my life, and as someone who has been working in ministry nearly four years now, I miss the point all the time. About once a year or every two years, I have to relearn the same lessons that God has been teaching me all my life. I have to relearn the importance of not putting my self-worth in my abilities. I have to relearn how to trust God through crippling anxiety. I have to relearn how to cultivate lightheartedness and let go of hard-heartedness. The good news for me and for you is that we have an incredibly patient God, and he is an amazing teacher. When the disciples missed the point, Jesus did not abandon their ship, and he does not abandon us. He's there to patiently teach us, and he delights in helping us see the bigger picture. He doesn't expect any one of us to have it together. No one has all the answers. I don't have all the answers. No one does. And part of cultivating a childlike faith is recognizing that you'll never have the answers on your own. We desperately need Jesus to illuminate the bigger picture for us. We need to ask him daily to help us see things the way that he sees them and to do things the way that he does them. So I recognize you still may be asking, well, Sam, I get it. You know, I'm going to miss the point from time to time, and, and that's okay, but if I can help it, I would really like to not miss the point. What can I do to make sure I'm not missing the point? I find it's easy to get really stuck in that question right there. And so what I want to do is I want to give you a different question that you can ask to get unstuck. A question that you can ask right now and a question that you can likely answer right now. Here's the question. What's the next thing I can do to love my neighbor? It is actually up there this time. What's the next thing I can do to love my neighbor? That's the question. Answering that question will look different for everyone. 
answering that question will look different for you day to day. Let me give you some examples of when you might ask this question and how to answer it. You may be sitting in your room asking God to show you what major to choose. I mean, maybe you've been praying about this for weeks on end, and you're banging your head against the wall because you're not finding any clarity or peace about it. If that's the case, then just take a break and go see if you can cook a meal for your roommates or do their dishes. You may be irritated because you're in between classes and you're in the Starbucks line and it's moving so slow because everyone's on their phones and no one's paying attention to what's going on. If that's the case, then just stop for a minute. Choose to slow down. See if you can strike up a conversation with the person behind you. Offer to buy their coffee. When you walk between classes, look up. Your commute between Adderhold and journalism is more than just a commute. It is an opportunity to see nearly 200 people who God dearly loves. And he may be giving you the opportunity to encounter one of them with his love. What's the next thing I can do to love my significant other? What's the next thing I can do to love my friend after we've gotten into a disagreement? What's the next thing I can do to love my coworker? What's the next thing I can do to love my professor? To love the person that I've just met in class who seems like they need a friend? The more we can answer this question, the more we'll be able to partner with Jesus and the work that he is giving us to do. And the more we can stay focused on answering this question, the more we will realize that the small things and the big things shouldn't take up that much importance in our life. Because if we can just stay focused on loving people like Jesus did, we'll realize that God is taking care of the small things and the big things for us. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, seek the kingdom of heaven first and foremost, and God will take care of all your needs. What's the next thing I can do to love my neighbor? You'll never miss the point if you can dedicate your life to answering that question. Let's pray. <clears throat> do what you do. God, thank you for this day. I pray that you would help us to see the bigger picture of what you're trying to do in our lives. Help us to be focused on the present. Help us to find ways to love our neighbor in real and tangible ways. Let us just be aware of your presence in the way that you're moving and working in the world all around us. And Father, if anyone is stuck and an anxious way of thinking, of just trying to figure out whether or not they know you or if they have a grasp of who you are or if they're in the right place, I pray that you would just provide peace and clarity. And I pray that you would strengthen us as a community to be able to encourage one another and become more aware of your presence through one another. In the name of Jesus, amen.